Good evening, Mendocino County. This is Michelle Hutchins, former county superintendent of schools, host of tonight's edition of Inside Education. Tonight, I bring you a list of questions that have often been asked of me, uh, mainly about school improvement and what I believe is truly the crux of what needs to happen in order for local schools or for any schools to improve their performance. One of the questions I get a lot is, do I know what students are thinking and feeling? How are the kids post-pandemic? How are our students today after the societal craziness we've watched politically and socially? Is the new normal being mentally unwell? I did a little research on this and, and And here are some of the findings from the research I'm going to share. This is from Feeling Mentally Unwell. This is a qualitative study on adolescents' views of mental health problems and related stigma. You can find this article or portions of what I'm going to talk about with this article on um, sciencedirect.com. The article is Children and Youth Services Review. Many of our adolescents that we've reviewed have stated that their own generation has greater openness, knowledge, and understanding about mental health problems than previous generations. They mentioned that the recorded increase in mental health problems in young people is actually the result of fewer taboos about mental health problems and increased access to help compared with the past. While participants of this particular study did recognize that prejudice and discriminatory behavior linked to mental health problems across the whole spectrum, such as variety anxiety symptoms caused by long-term stress to severe mental illness, in general, really they found that young people are more familiar with and less prejudiced towards more of the common conditions. Now, with that said, while the adolescents recognized mental health problems are an increasingly increasing burden for young people in society, they also had a nuanced understanding of the factors that may explain this trend. The participants in this particular study that we're talking about attributed the rise in mental health problems to societal changes. Their suggestion that improved openness about mental health problems is an additional factor influencing the increase in the diagnoses, which also has been proposed. Now, these adolescents recognized potential risks to mental health problems being the new normal. One risk identified was falsely labeling those without mental health problems as having a mental health condition. Conversely, problems presented by young people with mental health problems might be disregarded because of a preconception that feeling unwell is a normal state of mind for young people these days, and that all young people have mental health issues. Interestingly, the adolescents in this study also stated that adults are less open about mental health problems and have less knowledge and more prejudice compared with younger people. They identified increased knowledge and contact with people suffering from mental health problems as drivers for reducing the stigma of mental health problems. Overall, the adolescents in this study considered increased openness 
reduced prejudice about mental health problems and reduced prevalence of stereotypical gender norms as important factors for improving young people's mental health. So let's just repeat that one more time because that's a very, probably the most important aspect, I believe, of this study. Overall, the adolescents in this study considered increased openness, reduced prejudice about mental health problems, and reduced prevalence of stereotypical gender norms as important factors for improving young people's mental health. That is an important point for education to walk away with from this study. Their responses conveyed hope that societal change towards improved openness about mental health problems might eventually lead to a future without stereotypical gender norms and prejudice against mental health problems. I am going to take a minute and read just the introduction from a report that was done uh, by a student that worked at the Center for Mental Health um, at UCLA. This um, is from Normalization and Popularization of Mental Illness and Its Impact, Personal Experience, and a Look at Research Findings. My interest in the effects of mental illness, normalization, and popularization begin in talks with my very close friend, Sam, who had been diagnosed with clinical depression and put on medication during high school. He told me that during the period when his depression was at its worst, he felt that he was experiencing was not the same as the depression he was hearing about and seeing among his peers. He noticed that the word was used loosely to describe feelings that did not reflect what he was experiencing. His perception was that many of his peers casually described normal negative emotions as depression. This caused him to feel his struggles with depression were being delegitimized, and this made him want to separate himself from those he felt were misappropriating mental illness. In hindsight, He admits that his way of judging others' claims to depression was somewhat unfair, but he sees it as part of a movement to normalize mental illness in ways that is creating a new set of challenges for those experiencing severe mental illness. Now that's something to think about. We're going to take a minute and just reflect upon that. This child, Sam, diagnosed with clinical depression, walking through the hallways, listening to his friends reflect on their own normal negative emotions as being depressed. Truly believe words matter. And if we can take anything out of that story as educators and people that work with children, it's to really think about how we use words to describe what we're feeling to either normalize or, if the feeling is not normal, denormalize the feelings so that 
people have true understanding of what's going on around them and can feel feelings and expressions because a child is still learning how to cope and how to understand what those feelings and emotions are doing inside of their body. And are those feelings of anxiety normal or are those feelings of anxiety or depression abnormal? And then what do we do about them when they come on to ourselves? I want to respond to that question about how are the kids? Is the new normal being mentally unwell? I'm going to say no. The new normal is not being mentally unwell. The new normal truly is having a better understanding of the words that we use when we describe our feelings in society today. And also to understand that the adolescents have a much broader acceptance and to not allow our own cultural biases as adults to get in the way of what our youth are teaching us today about mental health. Let's pay attention, a little more attention, I believe. This is Michelle Hutchins, former county superintendent of schools, your host of tonight's edition of Inside Education. Tonight, I will be answering a variety of questions that have been commonly asked to me. Another question I receive is, how can I help my students or how can I help my child cope with climate change? I have a couple of resources that can assist people in uh, addressing climate change with their children or with their students. Um, NPR.org in 2022 did have an article called Kids, Kids, Youth Coping with Climate Change. And here are a few resources that came out of there. There also are resources, um, no, same resource. So Um, Again, NPR.org, if you were to Google on their site, kids uh, or kids slash youth coping with climate change, you can find a lot of resources there. What we do know is that clinical anxiety affects a small yet growing percentage of children. Very small. But worries about the environment are widespread amongst children. In a recent poll in the Washington Post, Seven in 10 teenagers said climate change will harm their generation. That was a bit more than what the older folks are saying about climate change. So the younger generation does have normal anxiety related to um, effects of or what, you know, what's happening with our environment. How to frame the problem so that we continue, we can continue to hope and not collapse into cynicism, apathy, or despair truly is the trick. Resources um, that are created for students do exist. Again, NPR.org and Googling youth coping climate change is a great start. Um, And kids, I will say that students across the world are increasingly facing the impacts of climate change. We know that. We see it here in Mendocino County. This comes from losing homes and disasters from either fires or floods to having our recess canceled due to either extreme heat or extreme smoke 
our climate anxiety is definitely on the rise. As our younger generation confronts inheriting a much hotter world, in coping with those feelings, many young people are figuring out ways to find meaning and purpose. Help children talk to a friend about how they're feeling. Encouraging children to talk to each other. Getting children out in nature so that children can experience the beauty that still exists. And also understanding that climate change can also bring new opportunity as our world adapts. Joining people to do something in your community when climate change seems daunting, finding someone who cares about it and asking how you can help in your community. Helping out in your community does not need to be a big project. The key thing is to find meaning in the action and build social connections in the process. This could be a classroom project, or it could be a family project, or it could be something that you simply help your child do on their own. In any case, helping out in your community is one of the best ways to make your child feel that they're making an impact, keep their hope alive, and um, make them feel like their actions matter. Another one is not to be too intimidated to speak out. I remember once when I was standing at the sink in the kitchen and my seven-year-old at the time suddenly said that I was lucky because I got to have my adulthood before the planet was completely destroyed by climate change. I didn't really understand that that was on his mind at the moment, so I hadn't spent all that much time talking to him about it. And the worst part is that somehow that his voice wasn't full of emotion. It was completely matter-of-fact, like, oh well, we don't have time to stop for ice cream. I didn't get to grow up in a world with functioning ecosystem. (laughs) So how do you confront a child when the science suggests that he's correct? There are six steps that I've read about that can guide parenting and teachers through this slow motion emergency because it's not something that we are going to feel the effects of tomorrow. So it's hard. Number one is to break the silence. For a growing number of families all over the world, there's no avoiding it. Climate change is already at our front door. For others who are more privileged enough to have evaded the direct impact so far, we seem to be struggling to deal with the constant barrage of anxiety-provoking news about the environment. And one of the biggest barriers among that group is emotional. Matthew Schneider Meyerson, an assistant professor of environmental studies at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore, is working on a book for MIT Press about climate change and reproductive choices. He says that despite the fact that the climate crisis literally affects everyone on Earth, too many of us are sitting alone with our worries, our faces lit by our phone screens in the middle of the night, We seem to be more scared of upsetting the conversation than we are scared about climate change. Mary DeMocker, an activist and an artist in Eugene, Oregon, is the author of Parents' Guide to Climate Revolution, which is a book focusing on simple actions families can take both personally and collectively. Asked what feelings parents tell her they are grappling with, she ticks off guilt, distraction, confusion, and the big one. Fear. 
who wants to talk about this idea of imminent doom or huge storms or wildfires sweeping through your town. It's frightening. I can't look at it every day. I have to take microdoses, really. It's important that we ourselves talk about it as adults, and then we also help promote our opportunities for our children to talk about it as well. What our children have the potential of experiencing in our community, as well as what many of our children have already experienced in our local community, means it is frightening. And it is something that could be catastrophic or very alarming for our children if the wrong things are potentially said. But what's real is that if we don't talk about it, that fear will grow. And it's important that we address really the emotional aspect of what climate change has around us. Number two is to give children the basic facts. NPR, the site I'm recommending that you all look at, did find a poll earlier this year that 84% of parents, including a majority of both Democrats and Republicans, agreed that children should be learning about climate change. But only 45% of parents, just over half as many, said that they had actually talked to their own children about it. There's a similar gap among teachers surveyed as well, so schools aren't doing this either. Here's a suggested script for both student, for both schools and parents to be able to give your students or, and children basic facts based on the conversations with several educators and psychologists. This could be used for children as young as four or five. Here we go. Humans are burning lots and lots of fossil fuels for energy, in planes, in cars, to light our homes, and that's putting greenhouse gases into the air. Those gases wrap around the planet like a blanket and make everything hotter. A hotter planet means bigger storms, it melts ice at the poles so oceans will rise, it makes it harder for animals to find places to live. And it's a really, really big problem. And there are a lot of smart people working hard on it. And there's also lots that we can do as a family to help. Now, we've talked before about learning resources, specifically on climate change on Inside Education. If we wanted to do a deeper dive, you could read a book or you could watch a movie on climate change together after having a very simple conversation like that with your young child. Try to make sure that the level of information you're giving them is appropriate and not too graphic or upsetting. But at the same time, we can't always control what they may be hearing elsewhere. It's good to be proactive with simple facts. The third thing to do to help students deal with climate change is simply to get outdoors. Take an approach where you and your child, you and your classroom, spend as much time as possible exploring the outdoors. We have old growth forests to vegetable gardens all around us. 
I encourage everyone to look at the bugs that are around them and think about what the bugs are doing because everything has a role to play. What is that spider doing in the corner of your room? What is that little bee that's going to end up eating that spider and stuffing it into its little... Anyway, everything has a role to play. So raising, raising your children to understand the web of relationships in nature rather than dwelling on ecological damage truly is the focus I think we should be taking when exposing children to the outside. Number four is to focus on feelings. Let's respond or call out this childhood anxiety. What's important about all of this is that we see the big picture and the positive responses to huge stressors like climate change. There are three big picture positive responses that we can give. This includes like spreading time with people who we love and care for, doing positive activities, spending time in nature, making sure we are we get breaks, becoming more emotionally literate as a family, having a toolbox of comforting activities to try when students are feeling anxious or when they're feeling low is one way to help everyone become more resilient to any stressor, whether it's something on the news or a storm or comforting to, you know, or something coming that that you are, you fear you may not be prepared to face. Our instinct is to protect our children. Of course, it's the, from any harshness of the world or from really even feeling bad. That's one of those concerns about helicopter parenting. Once really children are old enough to be in school and to understand a bit of the news, that's not necessarily always going to be possible. So it's really our job as parents and as educators to be open to hearing how children might be feeling and thinking about what's going on around them, specifically climate crisis, and being able to help children to manage those feelings. It's real. The fifth one is to take action. These are things that we can try to do to mitigate the actual problem that's causing the stress. Getting involved in any kind of positive promotion or position, whether it's writing in a blog or a book, whether it's writing articles to the newspaper from any kind of action, could be stewardship for the environment like composting or even picking up trash to some sort of civic engagement like writing a letter or showing up to a local meeting. Beyond taking action as a family, increasing numbers of parents can also find themselves supporting some teenage activists. We have some local teenage activists we've seen in supporting our local forests and working also alongside our Native American tribes. When we look at a national poll, we see that one in four teenagers has taken some sort of climate-related action in America. But to promote children to figure out what they're passionate about and then to be able to write letters and create empathy, create cooperation, Uh, some sort of presentation skill and self-efficacy are all things that we want our children to develop, especially if we want them to thrive as adults. So we don't have to push any particular actions onto our children. What we want to be doing is listening to our children and providing helpful information and support 
for them to move in any direction that they feel is important. It's also about stepping back and letting letting the child lead that process of activism. The sixth thing really is finding hope, thinking how to frame the problem so that we can continue to hope and not collapse into cynicism, apathy, or despair. How do we do that? One successful strategy that I've read about is to develop trust that others are working on this problem, to realize that none of us are alone. A second is to focus on the many benefits of a sustainable future, like more social social justice, stronger communities, and better health. We do, as parents and as educators, have a tricky role to play as young activists step up. We have to partner with them and we have to not abandon them in this crisis. Yet we have to step back at the same time and really let them lead the process. It's a balance parents have to find um, when even sort of like when children are younger and they're first finding their independence. This is similar in the teenage years. It's a funny dance and it's a lot of what parenting is about. When I think about the options available uh, when trying to cope with this global crisis as a parent or as an educator. We can't see hope as a landing place or a single destination. It's really about facing the facts, taking action, and offering comfort when we feel stronger and taking breaks, reaching out for support, and looking to others to help carry us when we get tired. It's a cycle. We know that. It's a cycle. It's a dance. So that's ways in which I believe we can support students when thinking about climate change. This is Michelle Hutchins, former county superintendent of schools, your host of tonight's edition of Inside Education. Tonight, I will be answering a variety of questions that have been commonly asked to me throughout my four years as county superintendent, but also as superintendent in a small rural district in Mendocino County. Another question I often get is what I believe is necessary to transform education for the better. It's very quickly, uh, you know, we want to say fully qualified, appropriately compensated teachers. We also want to say public tolerance and parent support to understand how children learn. We also want to say good diets, lots of love, and child confidence that loved ones are always there. However, none of those things we have control over. There are some things as a school administrator you have control over when it comes to teacher retention. Retaining teachers requires more opportunities for collegial collaboration. In the first years on the job, teachers need and deserve good mentoring. This requires designing opportunities for mentors to model and guide personalized professional development. What I mean by that is to demonstrate and discuss teaching approaches, guide initial application, and follow up to improve and refine practices. Depending on practicalities, mentoring can take place in a teacher's own classroom or be carried out in colleagues' classrooms. Some of it may take the form of even team teaching. But without that direct, on-the-job mentoring approach, the first years on the job can be very, very difficult. 
every teacher in a school can benefit from good collaborative working and learning opportunities. This, however, requires designing opportunities for a teacher to work closely with other teachers and student support staff, as well as with parents, professional in training, volunteers, and so forth. Note that new directions for support staff calls for them doing more than providing out-of-classroom supports. Their roles today can be expanded to collaborate inside the classrooms. The more that we have support staff working inside classrooms, the more students with disabilities or that require additional supports spend in the general education classroom. And all research shows that that improves learning for that particular population of student. Collaboration Teaming and supports for students who need special assistance are key facets of school improvement efforts that have the potential for making classroom teaching way more effective, enhancing teacher on the job professional development, and increasing teacher retention rates. There are interesting approaches that some schools are taking to be able to support new teachers in the classroom. An example of one of these is in Westwood High School in Mesa, Arizona. It is one classroom with four teachers that manage 135 students, and these teachers love it. One giant classroom. This is what ninth grade looks like at Westwood High School in Mesa, Arizona's largest school system. There, an innovative teaching model has taken hold, and it's actually spreading to other schools in their district. Five years ago, this particular district was faced with high teacher turnover and declining student enrollment. Westward leaders essentially decided to try something different. Working with professors at Arizona State University's teacher college, they piloted a classroom model known as team teaching. It allows teachers to dissolve the walls that separate their classes across physical or grade divides. The teachers in this particular classroom share large groups of students, sometimes over a hundred or more, and rotate between group instruction, one-on-one interventions, small study groups, or whatever the teachers as a team agree is a priority that day. What looks at times like chaos is in fact a carefully orchestrated plan. Each morning, the Westwood teams meet for two hours of the school day to hash out a personalized program for every student. They dictate the lessons, skills, and assignments the team will focus on for that day. By giving teachers more opportunity to collaborate and greater control over how and what they teach, The administrators at Mesa's Washington School hope to fill staffing gaps and boost teacher morale and retention. Initial research on this specific project suggests that the the gamble that these administrators made could very well pay off. One of the nice things about this approach is that you can team new teachers with very skilled tenured teachers. Researchers from John Hopkins University found those that worked on teams reported greater job satisfaction, more frequent collaborations with colleagues, and more positive interactions with students. 
Early data from Westwood also shows on-time course completion a strong predictor of whether freshmen will graduate. Improved after the high school started using the team approach for all ninth graders. They also found, or Arizona State University found, that students in team-based classrooms have better attendance, they earned more credits towards graduation, and posted higher grade performance averages. The team regularly welcomes other educators into the classroom for bilingual or special education services and other one-on-one support. Another area in terms of affecting bettering our schools, again, another one is public tolerance and parent support to understand how kids learn. One of the ways to increase public tolerance is to introduce the concept of service learning in schools. 20 years ago, I ran a program, a nationally renowned program for Eureka City Schools that focused on utilizing high-end technologies and engaging students in solving real-world problems in their communities. This program focused mainly on increasing the ability for students to have what we call student voice and participation in their learning. I'm going to take the next few minutes to talk deeply about student voice and the role in which student voice really plays in learning. Discussions about youth voice are increasingly and often controversial. Beyond the interest in youth voice is a concern for youth participation. This encompasses a focus on civic engagement, youth rights, and intergenerational equity. As defined in a sociological and psychological context, intergenerational equity embodies fairness or justice in relationships between children, youth, adults, and seniors, particularly in terms of treatment and interactions. One arena of discussion focuses on student voice and participation. Advocacy ranges from appreciation of importance of understanding the perspectives of youth to call for promoting youth development and empowerment, and on to the proposition that youth participation benefits families, adults, organizations, planners, policymakers, communities, and society in general. I have seen this in action when I ran that program in Eureka City Schools. I also saw this in action in Anderson Valley when a small student leadership club focusing on service learning helped re-engage or helped the Paul Dimmick campground come off the list of campgrounds to be closed by the national by the state park service and instead was open to day use because the students actually were able to build new picnic tables, refurbish the bathrooms, and make the park a better place for families to be. What occurred is that the development and learning and empowerment of these youth actually benefited 
state organizations, local families, policymakers and planners, as well as the community of Navarro and our society in general, because we now have a day park open in the Navarro Redwoods on 128. That wasn't the case before. Some advocates about student learning or service learning or student voice organize students into social movements and push for establishing a student bill of rights that guarantee a vote on all schooling matters that affect them. Opponents will argue that student voices lack a mature perspective and often are unrepresentative. They also worry that youth voice and participation can overly empower students and undermine the experienced and expert decisions of school professionals and policymakers. I've also seen this happen. Some are agreeable to student input and are only opposed to students having a major role in decision making. Others caution that eliciting student views and recommendations gives them hope that schools will respond with positive actions, and when this doesn't happen, negative reactions are likely to occur. Despite this opposition, however, most educators understand that students have an important perspective and insights into learning, teaching, and schooling. And many believe that student viewpoints warrant attention and discussion by decision makers. Some definitions include roles and functions for student voice. Examples are things like student participation and governance decision making related to policies and planning and involvement in arriving at decisions during planning and implementation of instruction or special assistance. Student voices generate a variety of views and perspectives. They reflect individual and group differences, such as in background, social and economic status, development, motivation, and ability to communicate. Participation may take the form of students joining established adult discussion, planning, and decision-making tables, or two, students establishing and operating their own organizations, or three, creating a new organization where students and adults collaborate as equals. Among the potential benefits of student voice and participation are improved school policies and practices and truly better outcomes. These benefits are reflected, for example, in greater student engagement and expression, personalization of instruction, improved learning and behavior, better school climate, and enhanced social capital. I have seen the effect that service learning infused with high-end technologies can have on an entire school system. Student voice is the reason that occurred. And it is particularly important in understanding barriers to learning and teaching. Students have thoughts and feelings about what's affecting their learning and behavior and what needs to happen to make things better. Empathetically, 
Hearing what a student has to say is a good starting point. We find it an essential facet of building a sense of trust and re-engaging students. At least I find it an essential facet of building a sense of trust and re-engaging students. For example, when teachers are receptive to expressed thoughts and feelings, students are more likely to open up about problems and needs. Furthermore, Eliciting a student's perception and participation are especially critical to effective problem solving. And all this helps students establish the type of collaborative relationships with a teacher or other adult at school that can be a significant protective buffer. You definitely establish a connection with a student when you say, I am interested in you as a person not just your academic side, but as a whole person. When you say that to a student, there is more of a reason to share the story together. Your student will show up because someone has taken an interest in their life, not just their homework. For schools, one aspect of the discussion about youth voice and participation involves how best to account for a student's perspective in providing differentiated instruction and addressing barriers to learning and teaching. I want to take a minute and really talk about this because differentiated instruction involves the unending quest for improving how we meet learners where they are. The aim in this is to create a good match or fit with the learner and in the process enhance equity of opportunity for success at school for every student. Personalized instruction is one facet of addressing the context and conditions that must be improved to address factors interfering with student learning and performance. But another facet is ensuring special assistance for students as needed. But both facets require accounting for individual differences, not only in capabilities, but in motivation. Furthermore, from a psychological perspective, I stress that it's the learner's perception that determines whether the fit is good or bad. Given this, Personalizing learning means ensuring learning opportunities are perceived by learners as good ways to reach their own personal goals. And the only way to really get any fix on learners' perceptions is through the student's voice with respect to what is needed to make instruction a good fit with their interests and needs and capabilities. This is especially critical in re-engaging disconnected students. This is Michelle Hutchins, former County Superintendent of Schools, your host of tonight's edition of Inside Education. We're gonna talk tonight about a few things that I believe, small tweaks, to public education that have huge opportunities for student advancement, or at least for student learning advancement. Some students are more than ready to say what's on their minds. Others are reluctant and even afraid to speak out in the school environment 
There are students who may not be aware that they even have a voice. And oftentimes, these are students who are experiencing problems and or who do not know how to make their voices heard. It's important for school staff to continuously focus on enabling student voice and participation. So here are some steps that can be used and various resources to help for encouraging and facilitating student voice and participation. This is a synthesis of references and resources. There's no priority to how this list is put together. Number one, provide and expand youth opportunities to become long-term contributors to school and community development. Establish and better yet, institutionalize as many ways as feasible to involve youth and enable them to participate in decision-making, planning, problem-solving, evaluation, and in taking action. Special attention must be paid to the special needs of youth with respect to scheduling, transportation, access to computers, and other learning tools, etc. Number two, be inclusive. Reach out to all youth. Being inclusive means recognizing diversity and differences. It means in socioeconomic status, age, ability, ability, ethnicity, language, religion, gender, and sexual orientation, lifestyle, etc. Particular emphasis should be placed on engaging those who have been underrepresented such as the many disconnected youth and those who often are experienced as disabled, disturbed, or delinquent. Participation enables those who are viewed as problems to become problem solvers. Again, participation enables those who are viewed as problems to become problem solvers. And in that process, the problems or the people who are viewed as problems when they become problem solvers, society looks and reintegrates those children positively. Number three, develop the capacity of youth to participate and lead effectively and the capacity of adults to work with them in supportive ways. Capacity building must focus on developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes required for working together productively. This includes a development of communication skills, teamwork, collaboration, and conflict and stress management. Adults should consistently convey that they value and need youth involvement. Mentoring should be mutual. Respecting the reality that adults and youth have much to learn from each other. Properly designed, such capacity building encourages and facilitates pursuit of opportunities for personal self-growth, skill enhancement, and leadership for all participants.
Number four, engage youth actively in providing new ideas that stimulate enthusiasm and investment in strengthening communities, families, schools, and young people. This requires actively facilitating youth input and ensuring that young people's ideas are recognized as of value. All ideas must be heard with respect. Youth bring to the table a fresh perspective for identifying issues and possible solutions. And when adults forget this, we lose. Number five, design the working environment to ensure equity and safety for young participants. Pay special attention to the distribution of power between young people and adults. Establish, and one way schools can do this is to establish member and leadership positions of authority, responsibility, and accountability for young people, and design discussions in ways that facilitate and maintain motivated participation that ensure voting rights and decision makings on all issues and solutions. If there are paid staff positions, some should be offered to young people as a way of ensuring a youth perspective is available on a daily basis. Number six, through collaborative mechanisms, integrate and weave together the resources of schools, homes, and communities to support meaningful youth participation and a wide range of networking for accomplishing the group's mission. Resources should be budgeted to underwrite the costs of effective youth participation and networking. Number seven, link youth to comprehensive planning and policy efforts. This includes participation in bodies that analyze existing policies and propose new ones. Involve them in confronting serious social problems and conditions that will allow them to see themselves as agents for the positive transformation of their own environments. Such participation can be a major step toward long-term participation and contributing to the community's programs and policies. And lastly, number eight. Self-reflect, evaluate, and celebrate the group's accomplishments in ways that recognize differences in perspective and contribution. Now, what do I mean by that? A key factor in capacity building for participation and leading is the ability to learn from experiences. This is facilitated by structured reflection and debriefing and by formative evaluation. It is important to use the opportunity also to let everyone and especially youth know that their involvement is valued and to inform the community and public at large about progress and encourage formal recognition and official thanks. Teachers, and other school staff can reach out to elicit a student's thoughts and feelings about school, 
home life, and life in general. Teachers can expand ways that they promote student self-expression through each day's regular lessons. Many, many activities can help. We have self-expression activities that provide time, guidance, and support so that students can express their thoughts and opinions. This can be done through written journal entries, through group discussions, or through artistic products such as drawing or making a short video. You can also create one-on-one -on -one time with teachers. Teachers can arrange individual formal and formal dialogue with students, a personal conference, a random chat. These provide opportunities for authentic and caring interchange and empathetic listening. You can also do interviews and surveys. Another formal approach is through a focus group, shadowing, or tape dialogues. These are common mechanisms used by those mainly seeking input related to school improvement. Special collaborative roles for students. Some of the literature focuses on choosing students to participate in special collaborative roles on committees. Opening up such opportunities encourages student voice and participation. Promoting student voice and participation in education requires organizational adjustments. Here are some types of questions that require answers in bringing youth to the table. What will be their responsibility, their role, their function, and their accountabilities? In what ways will the responsibility and accountabilities be the same? And in what ways will they differ from the adults at the table? Who should be recruited? How will they effectively be inducted into the operational infrastructure and prepared for the roles and functions they will serve on? How will they be reimbursed for their time, effort, and costs? How will meetings and work groups be arranged to accommodate their school and work schedules? How will the group provide for continuously developing the capacity of youth and all others and support everyone's efforts in ways that enhance motivation for working together productively? Are there plans for regular debriefings and evaluations? Student voice at school planning and decision-making tables can often be difficult. Promoting student voice and participation in education requires organizational adjustments. Here are a few questions that you should answer before bringing youth to the table. I also have a checklist, a sample checklist, developed by the Association of Alaska School Boards to help boards, school boards, determine their capacity for having effective youth representation. One, does the board have the time and resources to make a commitment to effective youth representation? Have you amended the bylaws or created policies stating that young people will be a permanent part of governing your organization? Is your board clear about why you are involving young people in governance? Is the board willing to adjust their culture to make things youth-friendly? Have you outlined recruitment criteria for new members, such as motivation, diversity, competence, quality of past experiences, etc. Is there a mentor or coaching system in place? 
Do you have a system in place for youth members to train new youth members? Are young people's terms of office equal to those of adults? Do young people have equal voting status or does your representative substantially influence governance of the organization? Ongoing whole school efforts are required to ensure that all students feel included, heard, and can participate in ways that influence school life. The aim is to build a school culture in which student voice is seen as essential. Such a culture is a critical part of facilitating school improvement that enhances student academic outcomes and general well-being establishes relationships that can serve as productive buffers, and builds a sense of community and better school climate. If the Every Student Succeeds Act is to be more than a phrase, student voices must be listened to and classrooms must be redesigned to enable teachers to personalize and blend instruction for all students, provide a greater range of accommodations and enrichment options, and add special assistance in the context of implementing response to intervention. Understanding student thoughts and feelings is key to making learning personal, and empowering and generally improving schools in ways that enhance equity of opportunity. And that, my friends, is what I believe is truly the route to improving our schools, is increasing youth voice. Well, that concludes our show this evening. Tonight marks the second year that Inside Education has aired to the listeners of KZYX. Again, my name is Michelle Hutchins. I'm the former County Superintendent of Schools, and it gives me great pleasure uh, to be with you this evening. I thank you for listening to listener-supported community radio. Enjoy your evening, Mendocino County. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.